Have you ever seen a humanoid robot and seen it move or talk and felt a little bit creeped out? Well, in today's episode, we're going to talk a little bit about the psychology of why that is, what is known as the uncanny valley in robotics and in psychology. We speak today in the Tech Emergence podcast with Derek Scherer, who uh, runs the Golem Group, has worked in industrial and entertainment robots, was actually uh, involved in the recent movie called The Hobbit, uh, where he did some of the animatronics work. And we speak today about what are those factors of robotics in terms of movement and appearance that really immediately scare people, spook people, and provoke a feeling of disgust. And how can we move a bit beyond that if we want to have humanoid robots be part of our society, whether they're bringing us a burger at a restaurant or handing us our money at the bank, um, if we are going to integrate some semblance of humanoid robots or robots in general, um, how can we overcome some of that disgust in terms of improving and making better robots? Derek talks a little bit about why, at least for the coming decade, it might make sense to have our service robots really not uh, look like humans because for at least the, the, the ensuing years, he believes that we're not really going to be able to overcome some of that initial sense of disgust. And he also speaks a little bit as to where he believes humanoid robots will potentially fit their place in our society. In other words, where are we actually going to see humanoid robots interacting with people and serving a role in the world once they're uh, mentally and physically capable, for, for lack of better terms, uh, for doing so and for serving those actual roles? Where are they really going to show up and where might they actually contribute to the economy and the job market or, or whatever the case may be there. So with that being said, we'll roll directly into this episode. So Derek, uh, to kick things off, I mean, you, you, your experience here is relatively vast in terms of, of movies and other kind of practical applica applications. Um, how do you define the uncanny valley as it exists in the domain of, of robotics and AI? I think the uncanny valley comes into play mostly because robots are moving. Um, there's also some degree of it, if you say, if you look at a wax museum, you know, there's a little bit of creepiness where something's human but not quite. And that's really the definition of Uncanny Valley is when there's that offness to uh, <laughs> something that's humanoid. And the reason it's called a valley is because as something becomes more like us, we tend to like it more. Um, for example, a, a teddy bear, a plush toy, is more attractive, more friendly to us than an actual bear. And it's becoming more personable, more human in a sense. And once we reach a point where it's almost like us, there's this revulsion, and that's called the Uncanny Valley. It's, again, referring to a valley, we would say that there's an opposite side to that, and that's really where we are when you interact with another human. That disgust is not there because you acknowledge that it's a full-fledged human. And for robotics, the idea of jumping that chasm would be to create a robot that's as human as we are in terms of how it's perceived. Yeah, and, and, and that would involve uh, visual cues. That would involve, you know, as you had mentioned, motion. You know, so it's different than a wax museum where they're not exactly moving around all that much. Um, right, that's it, sort of an amplifying effect on the yeah. either creepiness or how lifelike they are. Yes, and, and, you know, I always found this pretty fascinating from a psychology standpoint. You know, I, I wonder where that comes from. If just as human beings we notice something moving in a different way and we think this is broken this is sickly this is uh something's wrong so something's very wrong it, it comes across as kind of that very visceral revulsion kind of experience i i wonder i wonder what the, the exact origins of that are if anybody knows oh i i mean just we can 
understand how much of our brain is devoted to social interaction, and it's you know a massive part of it. And we have all these cues that we pick up in each other, tiny, almost imperceptible details <laughs> yeah. that you know, for a robot would be incredibly difficult to pick up on. But we notice these things, and slight changes in the intonation of our voices, and you know where the eyes are looking, and tiny muscle movements in the face, and all these things are communicating a massive signal. <laughs> yeah, it's interpreted as a emotion. Typically, you know, do we like this person? And so you can understand that if just a few of those things are off, then the signal gets scrambled in a sense, and we, we pick up on something very different. It's it's not like if you looked at a, you know, if you look at a pigeon, and that pigeon's kind of giving you a strange facial expression. Of course, you wouldn't notice them like that because you don't have that same sort of connection with a pigeon as you do with another human. Yeah. Your brain just isn't wired for that. So I think that's at the heart of it. Yeah, so, okay, I, that's that's a great way of actually putting it, is that so much of our minds are dedicated to social interaction and picking up on all of those cues, not in palm trees, not in pigeons, not in porcupines, but in people. Uh, we, 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 you know, movements of the body, you know, so real real human beings shift themselves while they're in their seat. They fold their hands and unfold their hands. They have... Uh, you know, they blink at certain periods, and you, you throw off any one aspect of that. And even people who, you know, want to deliberately creep, be creepy, quote-unquote, if you want to kind of spook somebody in a social context, all you really have to do is throw off a couple of those deliberately, and automatically somebody feels like something is off. And, of course, that gets amplified uh, with a situation, you know, in, in kind of the robotics domain. And when we were talking off microphone, you had mentioned why maybe um, for practical application robots, whether this be, and maybe you have different visions in mind, I'm going to throw out a couple of random examples you could disagree with, but a robot that would maybe bring you your hamburger when you're at a restaurant or, uh, you know, get your dollars from the bank when you're at the bank, uh, you know, some kind of a robotic teller of sorts, uh, you know, movie tickets, whatever the case may be, um, that we, we ought not aim to replicate humanity to a T um, in those circumstances because of that uh, potential creep-out factor. At least that was kind of the notion that came across. What are your thoughts there? Yeah, it's certainly the approach that I've been taking. As you mentioned, the, some of the background I had was in entertainment and also industrial robots and different things like that. But specifically for robots that are meant there to provide an experience for people, as in like an entertainment or social experience, my approach has been to avoid the uncanny valley as much as possible while getting the positive aspects of, like I mentioned the uh, teddy bear earlier, yep. getting those positive aspects. And yeah, yes, you're correct. That's, I think, is a beneficial approach. I certainly wouldn't um, try to discourage anyone from creating humans you know, as accurately as possible. I think that's a fantastic goal, and it can certainly teach us things and potentially bring out amazing products. But my vision for how robots can best work with us in you know, collaborative environments or, or serving us burgers or whatever is to bring creatures or characters to life that are more similar to, say, a, a Bugs Bunny or E.T. Or, you know, or a variety of other characters that are kind of brought out of people's imaginations and characterizations abstract renderings of the things that we find inviting in people. So, you know, big smiley faces, big bright eyes, that kind of stuff. You, know, you, can, you can create a robot like that, and I think that could actually be quite a bit more effective in creating the social and entertainment experiences that you, 
that you want to provide. Yes, yeah, so you, you have, and, and there's examples of this, right? Robotics for children or, or even, um, uh, you know, what's, oh man, I don't know why I'm forgetting now the, 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 the assembly robot. I'm forgetting its name. It has the hands and it can... Oh, Baxter. Baxter. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right. Baxter. Yes, that's, a, yep. that's a great example. So, I mean, like, how... I mean, if you look at the yep. face of that, it's, I believe it's just eyes, isn't it? And eyes are, of course, incredibly expressive, but they also have all these subtleties, like, you know, slight widening of the eyes and that kind of thing. And I think that their approach is similar to what I'm suggesting, yeah. which is to be as, as direct and clear as possible in your communication, and that way you leave very little room for error and very little room for weirdness, such as the Uncanny Valley. Yeah, it, it, it comes across as not an attempt at a skeletal robotic man. It comes across as sort of a, a friendly, tubular-shaped sort of body that sort of looks, looks to be happily working away at something in, in a way that, you know, maybe the robots in the movies do, like um, whatever the, 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 the house-made robot in the Jetsons, you know, where it's sort of quaint, almost kind of quaint, quaint and, and pleasant-looking. And, and in your perspective, maybe as we build more practical robots, whether it be for, you know, cooking and cleaning, uh, you know, cleaning gutters, uh, working inside houses, industrial circumstances, uh, you know, the restaurant bank teller examples we had talked about. If we're interacting with humans on a regular basis, probably an easier swing to have positive interaction to shoot for an overtly robotic, uh, uh, in, in, you know, um, embodiment uh, that maybe has some of the basic social cues of sort of pleasantness, the big smile, the expressive eyes. You know, what's the movie with the, the, the robot with the little tracks, and then it has the... Um, Wally. Wally. Oh, jeez, Derek. Yeah, you, you're, you're more immersed in this I've world than I. Yeah, you're, <laughs> you're, you're, getting them, you're getting them pretty fast. I, I haven't been to the movie theater since I was, you know, I don't know, 21 or something. But um, Johnny Five would also be acceptable. Yeah, Johnny Five. Oh, goodness gracious, man! I was young with that one. Um, but but anyway, yeah. So it, it's it's a good example of you know a clearly robotic form that has enough of sort of those basic cues where we can tell that maybe there's there's uh, what we might say something inside, right? We can tell like oh there's there's like a little there's a little guy in there. You know, he's this is a little person. You know, because it has eyes. Because because us silly human beings, as you mentioned. Um, you know, we have all these detectors as to what's alive and what's not alive and, and what are our cues to its intents based on all these social cues. Of course, that doesn't necessarily have to apply to robotics at all. There could be smiling, happy robots that could serve you tea and, and use the same facial expression, you know, uh, I don't, you know, shooting you with a flamethrower or something. But, but for whatever reason, you know, we tend to be comfortable around it so we could keep those basic social cues, overt robotic form, and have a more seamless non-creepy, for lack of a better term, uh, interaction with robots in these practical settings. And so our initial swing, even in quote-unquote human-esque roles, uh, you know, bank teller, uh, waitress, you know, janitorial, whatever, um, it, it might be a, a, an easier sort of assimilation into, into um, our, our human society if they are, are in that bent rather than trying to mimic us, which clearly freaks up uh, freaks out many, many, uh, many a human. Yeah, I think that's, that's. I want to stress a small but I think important point. Go for you, it. You talk about making them overtly robot, and that's almost there, I think, because if you think of a uh, a Muppet, you know, Jim Henson, Sesame Street, mm. that kind of stuff. Those are not overtly hands with skin coverings. They are their own characters. They are Muppets, and 
so in the same sense, like an animatronic, for instance, a Disney yep. Imagineering type animatronic, is also a character, and it is a robot, but it's not overtly a robot. It is its own character because of robotics technology and puppetry technology and acting and movement. You know what I mean? It's all these elements that come together to create a character. Yeah. And so it, it may be the best approach for something like a, a in a human robot collaborative environment to have a, a character there. I don't, I don't think it has to necessarily be overtly robot. In fact, I've, I've spent my, my thrust is to have them so that they're not overtly robots, meaning that you can quickly indicate something's a robot by exposing the chest and showing gears whizzing around and, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and yeah. making lights. And, and that, I think that also has an off-putting effect it, it, because yeah, it, it's it, not quite, yeah. um, it's not quite gizmo. It's actually a, a sort of cybernetic monstrosity. Yeah, it's yeah. Sort of, it's, uh, it's, an, it's another uncanny valley. An, an, an abomination in the very traditional dictionary definition of the word, if anybody wants to hop on Webster's. Um, so with, with, that, with, that being, with that being said, I, I like the distinction, Derek, and I appreciate that. Um, in some instances... Uh, it, it may make sense. We shouldn't think about it, and I, I, I like this wording a, a lot more. We should think about what is the the character that we're conveying here, whether it's a janitor, whether it's serving us a hamburger, whether it's interacting with our kids at a theme park. What is the character? And I think different roles would maybe necessitate different characters and also different physical features, right? You could have a a, a, a robot at a theme park that could be big and fuzzy and red and have hair like, you know, the the Sesame Street guys, but like the, the, the robot that has two legs and two arms, but crawls around in the gutters and, and cleans them out, um, you know, in the sewers or, or what have you might have to have some kind of a sleek metallic kind of appearance. It's easy, easier to wash. Uh, you know, it's not necessarily seen by people all the time, so it doesn't need the same big googly eyes for the little kitties. Um, but, right. but we and you're could, communicating different things with those also. I, I mean, specifically because I focus so much on robots that interact and work around humans. You, it's what a designer would call affordance. When you have a specific, a particular design, and a human observes that, they perceive that system as doing certain things <laughs> and functioning, living, yeah. uh, being for a certain purpose. And so you're communicating those also with whether it's a metallic skin or whatever, and it's also creating the character. Yeah, it's it's what are you portraying? And actually, I really like I like this idea, Derek. You let me know if I'm on the right path. You know, we're just like a business. You know, IBM when they send their salespeople out, they they don't you know they don't wear skinny jeans and you know pressed shirts with like old vintage Coca-Cola logos on them. Um, and like backwards uh, baseball caps or something, right? They they send them out in pretty sleek, uh, generally gray suits, as far as I know, uh, with with blue ties that that match kind of the classic IBM color. At least this is the way that that it was done. And and they they go out conveying an image, right? I mean, because when when you show up at uh, you know you show up at a, some some other gargantuan firm and you're aiming to sell. Um, you know, a supercomputer, you know, there needs to be a certain kind of je ne sais quoi. Similarly at McDonald's, you know, not everybody in the back with the burgers has on a three-piece suit and, and a blue tie, A, because those are really expensive and, and there's a lot of grease flying around back there, but B, because that's not necessarily what they're conveying. So in some sense, this is an extension of just 
what is being portrayed? What is the role we're portraying? What is the character we're portraying? What is the feeling we want to convey to the people interacting with them? And it sounds like these are all considerations that we're taking into account when we build practical robots that are interacting with people, just as we would our, our, our wardrobe. Of course, there's just a lot more variety. Yes, I believe that's correct. Yeah, and an additional wrinkle comes into play now that we're getting into telepresence robots um, because you are creating a character, but in a sense you're also having a human communicate through that character or uh, you know experience the surroundings of that character. So you want to have people interact with the robot as if they're interacting yes. with a human. Yep. Because they are, yep. but also you can't make it appear, you know, you can't attempt to recreate the human in robotics currently because you'll land in the uncanny valley. So it's this interesting balancing act in that domain. That That's curious. And we haven't even come to that crossroads in any kind of major way, Derek. At least I don't believe that we have. But I think that I... I, I foresee it as relatively inevitable, and I think that there's uh, a, a lot of kind of robotics nerddom at present that will at some point appear uh, massively important and relevant, um, and, and, and hopefully that's a pop fly that'll come up that, that you know folks like yourself might be poised to catch uh, once robots are all over the place. Um, uh, with, with that being said, before we go into uh, telepresence and embodiment, which I think is, is an interesting point. Um, let me ask this out of my own curiosity, and because I believe a lot of the audience might be intrigued by this same question. Um, how close do you think we can get to modeling humanity? You know, there are folks that are aiming to shoot there, and like you said, it's not inherently bad. You, you didn't come onto the show to say anybody aiming to build legitimately humanoid robots as a Nimrod. Um, you know, it's just not your shtick right now. And, and I, I actually think there's some credence to your perspective on our, our initial practical robots and their own design. I think there's a lot of credence there. How, you know, how, just how tough is that to legitimately, maybe not fool people, but get, get basically over the uncanny valley? I mean, how, how much harder is that than getting to sort of where we have already in robotics? Well, I think we're going to see it first in computer graphics because that has a very rapid iteration cycle and there is a lot of money in, in getting it right. You know, there's video games and there's movies. Yep. Those are two big cash cows that, Lots of that bucks. are funding Lots and fueling this development. Yep. So I think we'll actually see it there first and, you know, with virtual reality coming online and basically hitting mass market currently, um, I think it might not be too long before people are legitimately... You mentioned tricked earlier, and I also don't know if that's the right word for it, but it sold on it. Sold on it. <laughs> tricked. Yeah, malicious. Um, so, and actually, that's quite for doing curious. It, yeah, yeah. I was, I was just going to say, you mentioned virtual reality. I completely didn't think about that, Derek, but now that I do, um, you know, a lot of Google's natural language processing uh, clearly is facilitated by the fact that there's so much damn text out there for it to comb and, and pick up on context and cues. When there's a bunch of people in bodysuits walking around, uh, we have people of all different sizes and shapes uh, and, and different physical propensities and degrees of, uh, of fitness levels and age and all that. Um, we may be able to mimic the minutia of, of uh, you know, what a nervous person sitting down who's six foot four and generally is outgoing looks like, you know, in, in terms of a virtual embodiment, like you said, in, in the computer graphics world. I, I, now that I think about it, VR and, and sort of VR drinking in the, the, the existing movements of real people, I think would, would permit uh, some machine learning to really be able to model the ever-loving heck out of that. 
Yeah, I think so also. And there's also, it's essentially a simulator also of physical reality, but it's unconstrained in that if you want to move some skin a certain amount in a certain condition, like if that person feels nervous and you want to do a slight frowning and wrinkling of the, you know, creasing around the eyes or whatever it is, you can do that in computers very easily, whereas I mentioned the iteration cycle, if you want to do that with a robot, you've actually got to build the motors and make sure the control system's there and make sure the skin is able to wrinkle in that way. Um, you know, all those things yeah. take more effort, so I just think the iteration cycle is going to get lower. Once virtual reality nails it, that will give us a great baseline, I think, for building the physical side of things. Very interesting. So, so, um, and I, I, this is this is uh, this is insightful. So, uh, computer graphics uh, will be sort of the the laboratory with the fastest iteration cycles. Virtual reality will help to facilitate and guide that and model genuine human mannerisms uh, to a T, or, or maybe aid in, in at least that process. And after that is all dialed in, then we can start saying, okay, now that we know what it's like, you know, you you, you got to you got to sit a lot of people in rooms with robots and ask them on a one to 10, how creepy was that in order to really make tangible changes. But once you can model, model it in that, I'd say brain scanning too. Oh yeah, yeah, no, you're right. You're right. I was going to see, I'm using that as a sort of hypothetical random example, but yeah, you're, you're, you're right. Yeah. Yeah, One, a one to 10. Yeah. People, uh, people not, not so good at, at, uh, genuine conceptions there, but, but yeah, regardless. Um, so it, it, it sounds like, modeling it there and really nailing it, you know, the word that you and I don't have a good one for, but selling, tricking, uh, modeling the ever-loving heck out of of legitimate human movement mannerisms uh, to a T in the digital space would happen before it happens in the physically embodied space. Is that something that even the wildest robotic dreamers can conceive of in the coming two decades, or is that precise embodied modeling in the robotics world something that you really... Are, are sort of bearish about actually happening. It will be interesting to see how our perceptions and how our standards change as we interact with, say, virtual agents and virtual reality, because it might make it so that we're sold without it being entirely human. We don't have to think that it's completely human. We just accept that it's near human and it's not a big deal anymore. You know what uh, I mean? The uncanny valley may fill, in a sense. Ah, um, so that's one possibility about yeah. whether, say, we're all, you know, strident human lovers, and we only <laughs> want to accept something if it's absolutely human, but we can be tricked. When I think we'd be tricked, I think could happen in, you mentioned two decades. Yeah. I think that'd be cutting it close, but, you know, I'm not really working in that space. Yeah, and yeah. I know when a lot of smart people get together and start bringing in what other technologies have brought. Are creating such as new materials. Um, I don't think that's completely out of the ballpark. Huh. Okay. So, so not totally unreasonable, but might be pushing it again. It's not your precise domain, but but that's it's a good at least good to, to get your your perspective. Also, nice yeah. to hear nice to hear somebody use the word strident in an actual sentence. Um, <laughs> you know, very very rarely do people really flex a good lexicon. Uh, you know, even even the smart ones. So um, set a standard. Yeah. No. That's that's what I'm. Yeah. Geez, that's what I'm trying to do. And, yeah. As you're saying. Did I just cut you off for something, Derek? What were you going to complete there? Well, another point on that is I think that many of these technologies that are very complicated and also very personal have a, a tipping point where mm. it's going to, and you know, Uncanny Valley is a great example of this, it might seem like it's really far away 
because we're very close and we notice all the tiny details and they seem magnified but a few more years of development at that point and suddenly it clicks and it all just works and we forget that whoever was so bizarrely off yeah i think that's definitely possible and I, i've had an example of that is artificial intelligence in general a few years ago, it seemed worthless to anyone, no matter how much money they had. You know, it could win a Jeopardy, which was incredible. But at, on a personal level, we didn't really have any use for it. And now anyone can talk to Siri or Google. Or, yep, yep. You know, it's all available to us, and you can actually use it. It, it. it clicked into place, and humanoid robotics might be the same deal. Might be the same deal. I also really want to highlight this one point. I think it'll have to be our last, and, and I'll very interested in your thoughts, is that the Uncanny Valley may fill. Now, that was a curious uh, statement, and here's, you know, I'm imagining, Derek, some kind of an an analogy to, you know, this notion of digital natives uh, today, right? Someone someone who who wants to know how it, you know, how to to work their tablet, you know, I mean, you you just tap the shoulder of any any 11-year-old, um, and uh, and you, you basically have someone who's a borderline expert at that stuff, right? This this notion of a digital native. Now, might it be possible that this standard of speaking with an embodied human form always having to be very human to a T, uh, th- this notion that 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 uh, if that's not the norm, right? If if an entire generation grows up with a good portion of their interactions being in virtual space or with somewhat humanoid creatures, then maybe that no longer even becomes creepy to them. I mean, if you think about it, Derek, you know, what we're, you know, there's all sorts of creepiness that happens on a day-to-day basis if we think from the perspective of a couple generations ago, right? We, we, we fly in effing airplanes for crying out loud, you know? Like people go to the moon, uh, and and uh, we're speaking like I'm talking to you, and we we could even be doing this via video. I could be looking at your face, and you're that far away, right? So so we wonder what are the facets of the the you know Paleolithic human experience um, that must be in place, otherwise we feel creeped out. And what are the factors that just get blown away by technology, such as so many of the standards I just referred to? Is it possible in your mind that these subtle social cues may remain kind of these archaic anchors that that must be standards for us to feel comfortable? Or or do you see it as somewhat reasonable that, that they will be blown away just as all the other standards have been, flying in airplanes, talking on Skype, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera? If I were to bet, I'd say they aren't going to be blown away for having the kind of interaction that we're having. But I think that we may, we've certainly got room in our minds to allow for new primitives to appear, such as communicating on video conference. And I think communicating with a non-human agent on a near-human level might be one of those primitives that we can have introduced and accepted. Yeah, I I, uh, I would tend to agree how how pliable it all is. You know how how varied how varied the experiences are day to day of different peoples in different areas of the world, and you just wonder how much of that can't be molded and melded. I guess only time will tell, Derek. An example we might use for reference is different cultures. You know, the United States is a great example of that, where we have different cultures come in and everyone hates them. And then after a while, whatever, there's the Americans. And, the, you know, that, <laughs> yeah. that's happened repeatedly. Yeah. And it's, it's a shifting baseline thing. And maybe these, you know, near humans, whatever they are, whether they're either humans in 
that are you know, teleoperating robots or artificial intelligence that's in a robot or AI that's just out on the cloud, that may be a shifting baseline that's bringing that's a new culture to us. Yep, and and I, uh, I personally, that's that's where I'm piling my chips. Uh, not because I like it or, or or not, and not because I don't like it either. But I, I just happen to believe that that is likely. And, and again, only time will tell. Derek, thank you so much for being able to share your insights. Uh, here on the show and and being able to kind of peer into the world of robotics with you. I very much appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. And that wraps up this episode on the Tech Emergence Podcast. Thanks for being here. And remember to subscribe on iTunes to stay on top of the latest news breaks, researcher perspectives, and entrepreneur interviews in artificial intelligence, neurotechnology, and more. And we want to hear from you as well. So be sure to leave a review on iTunes, which are always appreciated, or contact us directly at info at techemergence.com. And remember, all of our entrepreneur interviews and interviews with top researchers from around the world, from Stanford to Oxford and beyond, can be found right on our main site at techemergence.com. Remember to sign up for the newsletter while you're there. So with the best of intentions for a brilliant future, this is Dan Figella signing off, and I'll see you next week.